0: Our beliefs are as important as our behaviours. It has to be both together, not belief without behaviour or behaviour without belief. It's belief and behaviour. That's what makes an integrated, rounded, consistent Christian. Last week we focused on character, behaviour. This week it's the belief that underpins that. And we're going to look at the second half of the chapter from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of the body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort... To see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What event is Peter talking about? This is my son whom I love, and so on. Well, it could have been the baptism of Jesus. But notice Peter says he was there and it was on a mountain, not by the river Jordan. So, of course, it's the transfiguration. Will you turn back to Mark chapter 9 where we read the account of Jesus being transfigured before them? Mark chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And verse 2. After six, This is what it was all about. After six days, Jesus took Peter. You see, Peter was there. We were with him. Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Notice the next verse, verse 6, is in brackets. You see, at that point, Peter, this is typical of Peter, feels he must say something. He still hasn't grasped what's before his eyes. The total difference between Moses and Elijah on the one hand and Jesus on the other And Peter, true to character, doesn't know what to say, so he says it. And Mark kindly tries to excuse him. That's why it's in brackets. It was only because they were so frightened. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, would you please stand and just think about this. A good question to think about. Why, if Peter wanted to remind them of a climactic event witnessing the power of Christ, his coming in majesty, why not remind them of the obvious one, the resurrection? Why this one? Okay, now either... Say something about that to your neighbour or just say, hello, my name is. Okay, chat for a minute. Introduce yourselves. Okay, before we sit down, let me pray. Keep 2 Peter chapter 1 open again. 2 Peter chapter 1, let me pray. Father, help us not only behave the way you love us to behave, but to believe the things you love us to believe. And help us to do that this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do continue these conversations afterwards, by the way, and if you are a regular and you've just met somebody who's new to St. Mark's, would you do two things? Would you take them next door and give them a cup of real coffee? Uh, And even better, will you introduce them to some of your friends? Okay? It's all a matter of interpretation. Have you heard that? Well, that's just your interpretation. Maybe you've said something like that. Well, our reading today is all about Bible interpretation. In that first paragraph, verses 12 to 15, Peter knows he's about to die. And he's desperately concerned that after he's gone, his readers shouldn't invent their own interpretation of the Christ event, but that they should keep hold of his, Peter's interpretation of it, his and the other apostles. His concern is that the second generation of Christians are not to, not to reflect on the establishment and growth of the early church and come to their own conclusions. That is his and John's. They should, they should stick with the conclusions. Of the apostles and the the conclusions that were handed down to them from God, from Jesus. In other words, they should not do what many New Testament scholars today say the early church did do namely, give us, well after the event in the pages of the New Testament, their interpretation of Christianity. Now, it sounds like an outrageous claim. How can Peter make such a claim? His argument is this, he says, believe this, this apostolic version of the Christ story because it's not actually our interpretation, it's God's interpretation. Peter launches into two paragraphs in which he talks about the witness of the apostles, that's verses 16 to 18 and the word of the prophets in 19 to 21, by which he means the Old Testament. So he's talking about the two foundations on which we build our faith, the New and the Old Testament. And he tells us why we should accept what the apostles and prophets said, and why it's so important that we should be reminded of this. Begin by looking at verse 16. He says... We didn't follow cleverly invented stories. That's a reference to the false teachers that we're going to meet next week in chapter 2. They did invent their versions of the Christian story. We, says Peter, we didn't make it up ourselves. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw it. It is in passing a particular arrogance of the 21st century that some theologians think they know better how to interpret the miracle stories than the people who actually witnessed them. You know, the raising of Lazarus was just a resuscitation. Jesus walking on water was just an apparition. Peter walking on water was at shallow low tide. Water into wine was a trick, feeding 5,000 a feat of distribution, and so on. Now Peter says, We're the ones who actually saw these things. The transfiguration, for example. Now what they saw was Jesus in dazzling brightness and Moses and Elijah talking with him. Those two represent the Old Testament law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. So the Old Testament, as it were, is standing before Jesus, but he is the one highlighted, literally highlighted. They're pointing to him as much as to say, all that we ever stood for, everything we looked forward to, is there in your midst. That's the first part of Peter's argument. We were eyewitnesses. We saw this. But notice he doesn't stop there. He goes on. At that moment, he says, Jesus received honor and glory. Not from us. We couldn't make head or tail of it. Well now you imagine if you'd been there. You wouldn't, would you? We couldn't if we had been there and seen that astounding sight of Jesus in blinding whiteness, we'd have been as clueless as Peter was. We wouldn't have understood what we were seeing any better than he did. And so Peter goes on to say in verse 17, that a voice came from heaven, from God the Father, telling us what it meant. This is my son. Moses isn't. Elijah isn't. This one is. And vitally important, do you see in verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven because we were with him on the sacred mountain. So put those two points together. In verse 16, Peter says we were eyewitnesses. It's nothing to do with legendary myths. We actually saw his glory. And John, you'll probably know in chapter 1, he also said, chapter 1 of John's gospel, exactly the same. We beheld his glory. But then in verse 18, he says, we not only saw this phenomenon, we also heard the voice from heaven telling us what it meant. We, the apostles, were not only eyewitnesses, we were also earwitnesses. Because we were there, we both saw and heard. Now, do you see how important this is? Even if we'd been there, we wouldn't have known how to interpret it without the voice from heaven telling Peter, and telling us today through Peter, shut up and listen. This is what it means. This is my son. And in the gospel account, it's recorded that the voice added, listen to him. Listen to him over and above Moses and Elijah. And over and above your or the church's reflections. The claim here, you see, is that the apostles were not only given a revelation of Jesus, but also an interpretation of Jesus. And that interpretation came not from a dream or an internal impression or a council in Jerusalem or from the experience of the early church, or even from the understanding of the apostles themselves. They didn't work it out, but it came from God. God showed them the event and gave them its interpretation. That's what they've written down for us, and that's what you're holding in your hand now. Now verse 19, this is the Old Testament. Verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. That means what we're telling you actually confirms what the Old Testament had all along anticipated. And Peter continues in verse 19, we in the age of the New Testament live in a dark place. Actually, the whole Bible tells us we live in in darkness, however brilliant the 21st century may be technologically, we're just as much in darkness with regard to God as anybody has ever been. Now, if you're in a dark place, what do you need? You need a torch. And Peter says the Old Testament is a lamp shining in the darkness that you and I should pay attention to, he says, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. At the final day, when Christ comes, he'll reveal himself in his fullest glory. Not just like that little snapshot at the transfiguration. His fullest and permanent and eternal glory. There'll be an external revelation of Jesus, but it will be accompanied by an internal revelation in every believer. We'll understand everything. It will rise in our hearts, he says. Now, the false teachers around Peter claimed, as, of course, cult leaders do today, that they had total illumination already. Well, if that's the case, then you don't need God's prophetic word. You don't need the Bible. The Book of Mormon, for example, will overtake the Bible or the Quran or a private spiritual initiation that God will reveal to you so that you know everything. And Peter says, Not so. It's not until the last day that the light will rise in your heart. Now, that's just like the Apostle Paul. Do remember in 1 Corinthians 13? Now I know in part, then I shall fully understand. On that day, you and I will have no more doubts. What an amazing thought that is. One day, every single doubt we have will be swept away. But until that day dawns, the world is still in darkness. Now, of course, Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world. But the question is, how do you see Jesus? Well, you need a lamp. And that lamp is both the witness of the apostles and the word of the prophets. So... Surprise, surprise, look on to verse 20 and 21. He says of the prophets precisely the same as he had said of the apostles. The Old Testament prophets, they didn't interpret what they saw any more than the apostles interpreted what they saw. Look at verse 20. Above all, you must understand No prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. See, he's talking there not about the reader, not talking about you and me interpreting scripture. He's talking about the writer's interpretation, the prophets themselves. No prophecy ever came by the prophet's interpretation. Do you see what he's saying? Just as Peter didn't tell us what he thought the vision meant on the Mount of Transfiguration... But what God told him it meant. So the prophets, Moses for example, he didn't tell us what he thought about the exodus. If we'd seen that rabble of migrant refugees with the Egyptian chariots in hot pursuit, well it's a great story. But there's no way we could figure out that it was a significant moment in history. But you see, the Bible not only records the event, it puts a label on it. It says this is not just a story, it's the great event of God liberating his people. And it foreshadows the greater rescue of the world through Christ and his cross. Now, unless God told us that, there's no way we could have guessed it. We couldn't have worked that out for ourselves. And even the Old Testament writers themselves were not making a guess at it. Look at the final verse, verse 21. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, that is, the prophets themselves. But men, the prophets, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, do you see, the Bible, what you're holding in your hands right now, contains both event plus interpretation. And it's within the text itself. The Old Testament, like the New, is a story that God himself has interpreted, not the writer's. God told the writers what it all meant so that they could record the interpretation for us. Now, again, why is this so important? Well, for this reason. The modern view, by comparison, on the right of the screen, is that yes, certain events happened in Bible history. And the Bible writers interpreted them for their own day as best as they could. But the meanings they arrived at cannot possibly be the meanings for us. They didn't know anything about quarks or genes or black holes. They were imprisoned in their culture. They were just telling us their experience of God, their understanding of God. So what we have to do in our own day is go back to the events, go back to the descriptions about them, go back to the deductions that were drawn from them and ask in our own day, now how do we understand the story in the light of our own culture? Distilled down to the person in the street, that's what we get on religious TV. And Peter says... Now, hang on a moment. The Old Testament prophets didn't interpret what they saw. God gave them the interpretation. Isaiah didn't read the signs of his times, as a Solzhenitsyn did of events in Russia, or a Nelson Mandela in South Africa. God showed Isaiah the signs of the times, but also, read the signs for him. And the same of the New Testament. The postmodern view is that the New Testament writers were men of their day. They were all men for a start, so they can't be trusted. And they used the language of power politics about Jesus. Titles like Lord, which is oppressive, King, which is imperialist. The one and only, which is exclusivist, and son, which is sexist. They also talked about demons, about heaven and hell, about sin and judgment. We don't believe in demons today, so they say. We see the world differently. So we must go back to the old story of Jesus and reinterpret it for the 21st century. So they say. So very topically, the Church of England published only last week a new baptism liturgy without mention of rejecting the devil or repenting of your sins. Now, not only the gospel writers were culturally imprisoned, according to that view, why not Jesus as well? We can't possibly say now that God speaks through only one person, so they say. Jesus was right for his culture, and he may be right for some cultures, like African ones today. But there may be other cultures, European ones for a start, for whom he is not right, so they say. You surely can't accept Jesus' teaching on marriage, or divorce, or adultery. And Paul, well, he was hopelessly a prisoner of his own outlook. You can't take Paul seriously today... What he says about sex outside marriage or same-sex relationships or Christians marrying non-Christians, so they say. Now, this is topical again. Last month, the Pilling Commission reported on human sexuality and claims, I quote, it cannot attempt a definitive account of the debate about the meaning of scripture even if such an enterprise were conceivable, and the church should be cautious about attempting to pronounce definitively on the implications of scripture for homosexual people. We learn from what previous generations of the faithful have understood the Holy Spirit to be st- saying to the churches. Notice that we learn from what previous generations understood, and we commit ourselves to finding ways for the church To continue to listen to his voice, clearly implying a search outside of Scripture. Bishop Keith Sinclair on the commission dissented. He said, I cannot put my name to this. He wrote, I am not persuaded that the biblical witness on same sex behaviour is unclear the very opposite but no says pilling you must put paul on one side and in the light of secular psychology make a modern guess at morality and ethics and what it means to be human and what god is like what the apostles had to say is marginal well yes obviously unless you believe That the apostles had not only the privilege of seeing the light of the world, Jesus with their own eyes, but actually heard from God how to make sense of him. And if Peter and Paul and the rest were given by God the interpretation of these matters, then they must have a permanent validity for us. So let me begin to sum up. How do I learn the truth today? How can I be sure I have a genuine faith and not a fake faith? Remember the string of pearls? Well, Peter is telling us it's not just a matter of behaving the right way, but of believing the right truths. I learn the truth about God and how he wants me to live, not by fresh reinterpretations of the faith. In the famous words of a U.S. Anglican bishop, the first century church wrote the Bible, the 21st century church must rewrite it. No, we learn the truth by going to the apostles. What they set down were not their own interpretations, but God's interpretations. They weren't saying, this is the way we see it. If they were, we could reply, well, that's fine for you. That's your interpretation, but we see it differently. Like these two ideas from a sermon on the Transfiguration that I picked up. The Transfiguration asks us hard questions about Hiroshima, that day when there was a mushroom cloud and a light on the earth so white that no bleacher on earth could whiten it. It forces us to realize that humanity has the choice between a journey that leads us to the radiance of a transfigured creation or to towards the burned radiance of life disfigured by a nuclear bomb. We have the choice. We also have to make it. And then here's another one. Then there is the transfiguration of politics that reflects on the transfiguration story as a paradigm for an alternative political vision which would challenge both conservative and radical. Now do you see when you cut the scripture loose completely from all control from all constraint and above all by the constraint from the constraint that god has put on it well then you can say almost anything you can have any amount of interpretations and you can make the bible mean anything you want it to mean in this case a lesson on nuclear disarmament or on the conflict between left and right-wing politics. Now, that's not cultural application. That is misinterpretation. The arrogance of the West today. We know better than Peter. We know better than Paul. We know better than Jesus. And breathtakingly in this case, we know better and the voice of God from heaven. And that's the way that people speak today. Now the Bible itself is an interpreted book. The apostles and the prophets before them recorded the true interpretation God intended them to write. Qualification. There is of course a contemporary task of our interpretation, the reader. And it taxes the finest minds for a lifetime of study. But the contemporary interpretation is secondary to the primary interpretation, which is within the text. And must be controlled by it. The great acts of Bible history are not just history, but history with a meaning. And the meaning is the meaning that the Bible writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, imposed upon it. The meaning that God said it actually had. And that's what they've passed on to us. Another second qualification. There is, of course, a contextual work of application. That's asking questions like, not just what does this mean, but what does it mean to us here in this time and place? And application will be culturally conditioned. But it must be application that's faithful to the interpreted meaning within the text. To give a very obvious and simple example, you may come to the conclusion that one of the Ten Commandments says that basically theft is not right. That's the meaning of that commandment. The application to someone with a history of pickpocketing will be different from the application to a city banker. Different application, different culture, different context. But it will not be such as, pickpocketing is wrong for a pickpocket, but it's okay for city bankers to steal. It will never say that. And that's what Peter was so concerned that the generation after him would remain faithful to. And if we're to be faithful Christians today, we must pass the same faith that we received to the next generation. And Peter says we'll do well to pay attention to this. If we don't, we'll end up in a dark room without a light. But if we do, when Christ comes... The full light will be before our eyes, and that full light will rise within our hearts. Amen.